The Mysteries of Watergate, Episode 25, Mullen and Company's Covered Up, I Cover want to talk to you tonight from my heart on a subject of deep concern to every American. Those who hate you don't win unless you hate them. I've been charged with involvement in a full, free, and absolute pardon unto Richard Nixon. What has come to be known as the Watergate Affair. I'm John O'Connor, author of Postgate, How the Washington Post Betrayed Deep Throat, Covered Up Watergate, and Began Today's Partisan Advocacy Journalism. Throughout this podcast series, we have spoken to the hidden status of PR firm Mullen & Company as an entity that provided cover for covert CIA agents. Needless to say, an undercover agent must have a cover under which to work. Mullen provided that cover in Watergate by hiring Howard Hunt as a purported copywriter. As an earlier episode notes, the American public never learned from the Post during Watergate of Mullen's status as a cover company, which, to be sure, was by its very nature intended to be kept under tight wraps. How important was it that the public know of Mullen's covert role? The public soon knew after the arrest that both Hunt and McCord were ostensibly retired CIA agents, and the Cubans had worked with them and the CIA during the aborted Bay of Pigs operation. And it also knew that Hunt worked part-time for Mullen. Wouldn't adding Mullen's status as a cover contractor be only a trivial thin new layer for public consumption, as a post-acolyte might argue? After all, this is only a bit of new information. But on the other hand, it may have been a small bit of information that would have been a huge tipping point in society's view of the scandal. How so? Let's ponder that question. Let's say that it was revealed shortly after the arrest that Mullen, Hunt's employer, was a cover company. Immediately, the conclusion that Hunt was possibly acting as an undercover CIA agent would be ineluctable. And if he was so acting, the leading question to be asked, given five other Bay of Pigs veterans on the team, would have been, doesn't this look like a CIA undercover operation? If that cover status were also known in the White House, Richard Nixon would immediately have publicly latched onto it as an explanation of this private brooding thought of the president. I understand that someone could think I'm crooked, but how could they say I would be so stupid as to order this silly burglary? The CIA's participation would show, in Nixon's view, that he was more a victim than a victimizer, and his inner circle was not the moving force behind this silly escapade. So, with some credibility, Nixon could have portrayed Liddy, clearly part of his administration, as a wild man who was swept up in Hunt's fatuous spy schemes, thinking he was promoting the public interest. So yes, the simple fact of Mueller's cover contract would have been huge and would have completely shifted the focus of the Watergate story. A searching public examination of the CIA's role would have been loudly sought by the public. Was this a domestic CIA operation? If so, it was seemingly illegal, wasn't it? But would this affect parties other than Hunt, McCord, Mullen, and the CIA? Most certainly, because the CIA would not have been interested in campaign strategies. So in addition to targeting the CIA, the public audience would want to know what in the DNC was of such interest to the CIA. But so long as the public thought this was a campaign operation, the natural assumption of the observant public was that the burglars were after campaign strategies. So let's say that in addition to the burglars' presumptive CIA status, the focus of the burglary on the domains of Maxie Wells and Spencer Oliver would also have added a significant piece to the puzzle. Now the immediate story would be, 
what was so interesting to the CIA about the contents of the Maxie Wells desk. It is not a leap too far to say that the entire emerging theme of the Watergate narrative would have been radically altered, from a bungled campaign operation to a bungled CIA intrusion on the Democrats. In other words, focus on the CIA would also focus the public on the interesting questions of what exactly the Democrats were doing that would interest the CIA. Given that, with the Post acting as always as the Siamese twin of the DNC, we can posit a motive for the Post not to uncover the Mullen cover contract for fear of exposing some Democratic secret. But is it fair to the Post to assume its reporters first could have uncovered or did uncover Mullen's cover contract, and secondly, that it hid what it knew. Put differently, we cannot fault the Post if the CIA successfully did what it is paid to do, that is, to keep its operations hidden. What did the Post miss or misstate? We know that a Mullen-associated lawyer, Douglas Caddy, appeared at the arraignment, having hired, seemingly in the middle of the night, lawyer Joseph Rafferty, to represent five defendants. So the question immediately rose as to how it came to be that a Mullen lawyer was involved in the affair. The first Post story quoting Caddy for his explanation was that a year earlier, he had had a, quote, sympathetic conversation, unquote, with the wife of Bernard Barker. She, by the way, a Miami resident, became worried that her husband had not called her late that night as he promised to do, and therefore she got in touch with Caddy. And, of course, the story was so much patent poppycock that it is difficult to believe that the story would be critically accepted even by a junior high newspaper. After all, did Bernard Barker call his wife early in the morning when he was out on assignment? Why would she assume he was arrested? How did Caddy learn that Barker was arrested if his wife did not? Why would she expect Caddy to get involved, given that her husband had nothing ostensibly to do with Mullen or Caddy? And why would he then scramble in the middle of the night to seek counsel paying Rafferty out of his own pocket? All because, we are asked to believe, the two somehow had a nice conversation a year earlier. The whole story strained credulity, but the Post published it without a trace of skepticism. The story was quickly superseded, but we question why a major newspaper would publish it unless it was part of a program of conscious deception. Hadn't the Post reminded us for 50 years how fearless and indefatigable their reporters are? Soon after the burglary, when Woodward, with Deep Throat's help, discovered Hunt's participation, the paper was a force to explain why, if a Mullen lawyer hired a criminal lawyer for a defendant at the request of a Mullen employee, that is, Hunt, who supervised him, that this really had nothing to do with Mullen. Woodward and Bernstein, or Woodstein as they called them, simply quoted Robert Bennett as saying that Hunt and Caddy formerly shared an office at Mullen, became close personal friends, and therefore Hunt called Liddy early that morning. So what is so irresponsible about this story? Caddy was a young, stylish man, easily identified as part of the gay urban demimonde. Hunt was a middle-aged, rumpled, scuff-shoe ivy leaker who enjoyed a country club lifestyle in suburban Maryland with his wife and four children. Moreover, Caddy was not anywhere close to being a criminal lawyer or even a litigator. Yes, it is possible that he and Caddy were close, and it's possible that Hunt knew no other lawyers in spite of working in the D.C. area for years and belonging to a fashionable country club. But, on balance and on the whole, this whole tale is hard to swallow. But the Post printed the story which seemed designed to take any spotlight off Mullen. After all, Hunt was working in part for Mullen and called a Mullen lawyer upon his arrest. So maybe... This was a Mullen job. 
But wait, how could this be a Mullen job if that company was simply a PR agency? It is this question that loomed large when prosecutors in open court, seeking to force Caddy to respond to certain questions before the grand jury, told the court that Caddy said he had, quote, intimations, unquote, that Mullen was connected to the CIA. This little item should have, with analysis and exploration, raised significant questions. After all, the burglary operation and arrests had Mullen written all over it, and Mullen President Robert Bennett seemed compelled to enter the fray to explain Mullen's participation. So did the Post raise the obvious issue that if Caddy's intimations were correct about Mullen's CIA connections, and six suspects of seven had CIA connections, ergo Hunt ran the burglary as a CIA operation under Mullen cover, did the Post make that inference? No. Instead, the Post quashed any such inquiry, again using the ubiquitous quote machine Bennett. Caddy Bennett was quoted by Woodstein, must have been referring for the work Mullen did, quote, for Radio Free Cuban in the 1960s, unquote. Now let's think about this one. Caddy spoke of his present, underlined present, intimations that Mullen had CIA connection. Was he really referring solely to a job, one publicly known, which Mullen did for the CIA many years earlier? After all, this was 1972, and the anti-Castro broadcasts had begun by order of President Eisenhower in March 1960, continued by President-elect John Kennedy. But as of 1972, the CIA program had not been hot project for years, nor had Mullen been involved for years. Even with these articles seemingly written to exculpate Mullen, it was still difficult to erase all questions about Mullen. Of course, with Bennett now front and center doing spin for Mullen, and with questions about Mullen's participation difficult to erase, the Post needed to explain Mullen and Bennett. It quickly did so, announcing in a headline story by Woodstein that Bennett was a Nixon campaign fundraiser. The story now seemed to explain Mullen's wide presence, that is, as a political crony and supporter of the president. The Post reported that Bennett put together, quote, dummy, unquote, organizations through which he made for certain donors' contributions to the Nixon campaign. In present parlance, Bennett appeared to have been a campaign donation bundler, although that term was not used at the time. So financial and political ties to Nixon now were used by the Post to explain Mullen's ubiquity. What's wrong with this story? Well, it's missing a key fact known to the Post. Bennett did not perform this fundraising function for a wide swath of Nixon donors, as is typical with, quote, fundraiser, unquote. Such, by way of reference, Kenneth Dahlberg was, who supplied some of the money that the burglars used. Rather, Bennett did this for one big donor only. That one donor was one Howard Hughes, the reclusive billionaire widely known throughout America. But the Post never disclosed Mullen or Bennett as connected to Hughes, especially in regard to fundraising. Why is this non-disclosure significant? Because by 1972, the strong association of Howard Hughes with the CIA was an open secret among the cognoscenti, especially those in Washington, D.C. His longtime aide from 1955 to 1970 was Robert Mayhew, who was simultaneously associated quite publicly and quite strongly with the CIA, mainly through Mayhew's detective agency. Clearly, Hughes had strong, well-known, long-lasting CIA connections. In other words, if Bennett was a fundraiser, he was the bagman for Hughes, a major CIA asset. But the Post did not tell the public that. Reporting that fact would again point to Mullen as connected to the CIA. 
Please recall that in addition to being involved in funding anti-Castro operations, after the dictator came to power, Hughes also helped the CIA raise the sunken Soviet ship, the Glomar Explorer, beginning in 1968, a project, we hasten to point out, which would not have been publicly known and perhaps not known to the Post in 1972. So the listener might conclude that the foregoing is merely a circumstantial indictment of a paper which won a Pulitzer Prize for this very reporting. This case would be much better if at least one set-in-stone marker of Mullen's CIA connection was shown beyond circumstantial suggestions we have thus far been making. In response, we'll provide one such set-in-stone marker. On June 21, 1972, in response to the astute query from the FBI as to whether Mullen was connected to the CIA, the agency detailed the cover contract it had with Mullen. This meant that Mullen hired CIA agents, giving them ostensible cover as Mullen PR employees. This arrangement would certainly suggest that Howard Hunt was such an agent under Mullen cover as a copywriter. Because of its sensitivity, it was difficult to believe that the top CIA brass would share this information with its street agents, or at least not all of them. So Woodstein would not reliably use their many special agent connections at the lower levels of the Bureau to ferret out this cover contract. But wait. Hasn't Woodward for 50 years ballyhooed his close, significant relationship with one Deep Throat? Until the world discovered Deep Throat's identity in 2005, most speculated that this gold-plated source was a disillusioned, conscience-stricken White House official. But now that we know that Deep Throat was the FBI's number two, Mark Felt, in charge of the Watergate investigation, wouldn't Felt have been a ready source for Woodward of Mullen's cover status, which Felt clearly knew by June 21, 1972, if not earlier? In other words, because Woodward was so close to Mark Felt, wouldn't Woodward have learned early on that Mullen was a cover contractor? Mullen has emphasized that Deep Throat would never steer him wrong. So certainly if Woodward told Felt he suspected Mullen to be a cover contractor for the CIA, it is hard to believe that Felt would not have at least encouraged Woodward on that question, in effect confirming Mullen's status. So Woodward would have had Felt's encouragement and confirmation if he asked for it, as Woodward made clear in All the President's Men. Astute observers might quibble with our suggestion in two ways. First, the matter involves national security, and therefore perhaps Deep Throat would not have been as easily and readily willing to convey that information. Secondly, such a tip would point to the FBI as a source, since the White House would not have had this memo from the CIA, but the FBI would have. Since Deep Throat was wary of pointing to the FBI, perhaps prudence would have dictated him keeping this information from Woodward. But both objections are overcome by CIA documents reflecting inquiries to Mullen from Sandy Smith, a close friend of Felt's and a frequent recipient of his tips. Smith called Robert Mullen on February 21, 1973, and then visited the Mullen offices again to talk to Mullen on February 22, 1973, asking about whether there was in fact a cover contract. It appeared from Mullen's report to the agency on Smith's overtures that someone in the Bureau had clearly disclosed the essence of the memo that it had sent earlier on to the Bureau, and perhaps had read at least some of it to Smith. We know this from agency documents produced years later through Freedom of Information Act requests. Clearly, the agency concluded after debriefing Mullen that Smith had been told of the agency's disclosure to the FBI, but just as clearly, he had not been given a copy of the document and had not been told of everything in it. This wise restraint by Smith's FBI source had Felt's MO written all over it. 
Mullen refused to confirm to Smith, and Time magazine published nothing about the cover contract. So, both objections we raised are overcome by the agency's own analysis. Clearly, the agency concluded quite rationally, Smith had been told by someone in the FBI of the memo, because only the FBI and only its top officials would have seen the memo from Mullen. The leaker was not worried about the FBI being fingered. More significantly, we can point to Felt as the leaker because he is the only top official that survived Patrick Gray's earlier purge of officials suspected of leaking in the fall of 1972. And if Felt had given several other key tips to Smith, a longtime friend, several right around the end of February 1973 when Smith was making inquiries of Mullen, it is logically inferred that Felt gave this tip to Smith. So is it reasonable to conclude by strong circumstantial evidence that Woodward had the same information as Smith had, or would have had it if he sought it from Mark Felt? We think so. But of course, it appears that Woodstein stayed far away from this issue so much that we can now conclude that there was an intentional suppression of this information by the purportedly dogged Woodstein. Perhaps we might infer on orders from their superiors. This imputed scenario is very close to being as ironclad as circumstantial knowledge can go. Woodward had a close contact who knew all about Mullen's cover contract, a source that told Woodward he would never be untrue to him. But we even have a stronger piece of evidence. In a CIA memorandum from CIA case agent Eric Eisenstadt to the deputy director of plans for the CIA, summarizing reports to the agency from Bennett, this document of March 1, 1973, recounts a July 10, 1972 debriefing of Bennett. This was just 23 days after the arrest. In this report, Bennett is summarized as saying that he made a deal with Woodward, whereby in exchange for stories from Bennett, a suitably grateful Woodward would protect Mullen and Bennett. Bennett later, after July 10, did source two very lame pieces for Woodward, but what items would Bennett have been referring to as having been sourced before July 10? Only the lame cover-up articles where Woodstein quotes Bennett, which we have already referenced, pointing to the White House and away from Mullen. So a logical conclusion is that Woodward and the Post covered up Mullen's status not to protect Mullen per se, but rather, for its own purpose, to protect the DNC, which would be so clearly implicated if the CIA connection would become apparent, logically leading to meretricious targets. In other words, the Post was covering up the story for its own purposes and that of the DNC with whom it was closed, not to help the CIA. So as a former criminal prosecutor, I view the CIA memos of March 1, 1973 and the debriefing of July 10, 1972 as detailing a conspiracy of obstruction between Mullen and the Post, where the Post agreed to keep Mullen's CIA connections under wraps. CIA documents also, quoting Bennett again, detail a, quote, backdoor, unquote, approach to Joseph Califano's law firm, Williams, Connolly, and Califano, which was handling the litigation by the DNC against the CRP. This approach to the law firm was admittedly to, quote, kill off, unquote, any revelations about Mullen that might come up in the DNC-CRP litigation. The firm could kill off such revelations arising from litigation, but only with certainty if the Post, its stepbrother, agreed as well. This backdoor entry 
to the DNC law firm necessarily involved Joseph Califano, a partner in the law firm solicited Williams, Connolly, and Califano. Since Joseph Califano was also the Post General Counsel, we can fairly conclude that the Post was a witting participant in the efforts to kill off any revelations about Mullen. Again, the primary motivation in the Post's shielding of Mullen was likely to protect the DNC, not the CIA. All of this proves a solid case of Post dishonesty if we let it rest here. But there is certain Post reporting that is so palpably dishonest that no circumstantial leaps of inference are required. Because of some honest security officers for the CIA, certain documents were belatedly disclosed, some of which we have previously summarized, such as the burning of documents at McCord's home by Lee Pennington, documents which showed McCord's connection to the CIA. This tardily transmitted trove of documents resulted in a 49-page report by Minority Leader Howard Baker of Tennessee appended to the 1,100-page report by the Democratic-Controlled Committee. This so-called Baker Report among other stunning revelations, verified the Mullen cover contract, which would seemingly be applicable to Hunt, even though the CIA refused to hand over Hunt's files. It was too sensitive, the agency said. But to us, what is significant about the Baker report is that it became a test of the newspaper's honesty. The Post could never claim that this information was not known to the paper, that is, the information disclosed in the Baker report. At the same time, before the Internet, The Post could also be confident that few would read the report, so it was free to lie about the report, even if the lies were starkly contradicted by the Baker report in a side-by-side comparison with the Post reporting. As the Stoic philosopher Democritus asked as he went searching with the lamp for the honest man, what man is honest when he is invisible? In their treatment of the Baker report, the Post journalists were, for all intents and purposes, invisible. The Post journalists could lie if they wished, and they did lie. The clear implication of the Baker report, which showed Bennett as reporting to his case officer, was not only that Mullen was a cover company, but also that the cover extended domestically, as shown by Bennett's reporting to a case officer. But this is not the way the Post spun this clear admission of a cover contract, which included the domestic protection of Bennett and, presumably, Hunt. The post-analysis of the report did not even mention Mullen by name and more significantly described its cover activities as applying to agents abroad without mentioning the far more salient fact that Mullen was clearly involved in domestic cover. We now quote from the post-news analysis by Lawrence Stern of July 2, 1972, detailing the key findings of the Baker Report. Quote, Among other things, the report describes how the CIA used a Washington public relations firm as a cover for agents operating abroad. This analysis by the Post of the Baker Report was affirmatively false in many other particulars, but this one falsity, through concealment, is enough. When I say falsity, I refer to deceit through concealment. After all, agents operating abroad had nothing to do with Watergate. Wouldn't it have been full disclosure to tell the public that Howard Hunt's employer was a cover company, which appeared to cover at least Bennett, and likely, by inference, Hunt? Hunt's file, we note, had not been given to the Senate. That in any case, it would have been helpful if the article mentioned Mullen by name as a cover contractor. That fact would have been highly significant to the public. Why, we ask, would the analysis, two years after the arrest, hide Mullen's name? By 1974, the public may have forgotten the early mentions of Mullen's name and its status as a PR agency. Why not mention Mullen as a cover contractor and remind the reader that Hunt and Caddy and Bennett were employed there? The Post concealed the truth here 
and it is some evidence that it had been doing so for two years. So, if we combine the post-seeming suppression of the facts showing first the Wells-Oliver burglary target with, secondly, suppression that the burglary supervisor was likely an undercover CIA agent or at least working for a company that had a cover contract, then we can safely conclude that these two instances of fraud by concealment had a huge deceitful impact on an important American historical narrative. To repeat, the Post could not even bring itself to mention Mullen's name as the agency which had the cover contract, nor did it mention that Hunt had worked for Mullen while burglary supervisor. If these were the only instances of fraud that the Post committed, they would suffice to convict the paper of a substantial cover-up of Watergate. But as we will show, there is much, much more. In these coming episodes about the reporting of the biggest political scandal in American history, we will detail a narrative of the most elaborately plotted, sustained, widespread, and significant fraud in journalistic history. Thank you for listening. I have just completed a book on the same subject, entitled The Mysteries of Watergate, What Really Happened. While it covers the material in our podcast, I have added two chapters of contextual materials and removed the repetition needed for a podcast. For those enjoying this series, it will serve as a valuable historical reference. For your non-listening friends, it will prove enlightening and entertaining. Thank you for your support.